foreheads. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us together this evening as family. Thank you for making a place like this always available so that we can fellowship this way in this unique way when we break bread together, the bread of life. We dine on the Word of God. Father, what a privilege it is to be here this evening. May we never become familiar with it, but understand it for what it is. It's an expression of your love by means of grace. Father, we pray for those that can't be with us this evening, that you heal them, comfort them. Let them know that we're with them in prayer and spirit. We pray also for those that are still unsaved and lost without hope. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt and to make an evening like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 58. We got a friendly reminder on Sunday. Uh, how's Lois, by the way? She's not here. Is she all right? Oh, okay. All right. Um, we got a friendly reminder on Sunday up here on the board. Deliverance is but a change of perspective away. And it truly does sound so easy, doesn't it? I mean, it's just like quippy almost. It's almost like, oh, you know, deliverance is just a, whew, just a change of perspective away, you know. Um, but why is it that we aren't all, you know, immediately delivered then? Like, all the time. What's the problem? The answer is actually easier than the change of perspective is. And it's that if you take out the power of God's word, you're never delivered. That's how easy it is to understand. If you attempt to go at it on your own, without the power of the word, then you're not delivered. It's that simple. So think about that. What does this imply? It implies that since, you know, we're not always and immediately delivered, I don't know about you, but I definitely am not, <laughs> it implies that we don't abide in his word 100% of the time. That's the implication. I mean, if we did, we'd never get caught in the net. We'd never get spun up. We'd never get stuck. If we did, we'd be like, you know, remember the little birdie that's, you know, 100% smarter than the trap? Remember that from like Proverbs 117? We'd be like the bird. It'd be foolish to try to trap us because we'd always have the word 100% of the time with us and we'd never fall into the trap. But that doesn't happen, which implies that we don't have or we don't abide in his word 100% of the time. Speaking of Proverbs 1, and since we're in the wisdom book of Proverbs already, let's give Solomon's opening thoughts a read. 
It'll be refreshing. Go to Proverbs 1.1. I love, 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 love this chapter in Holy Scripture. It's such a wonderful setup for the rest of the book. I mean, we're in Proverbs 17, but look at how Proverbs 1 just sort of, you know, sets the stage. It's awesome. And we'll get to verse 17, obviously, but let's start with verse 1. The Proverbs of Solomon, Proverbs 1.1, the Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Remember, Solomon is sort of prophet in Holy Scripture as the wisest man of his time. There was none like him. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise in their riddles. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. How many times have we come back to that gem? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching. For they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like Sheol, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in, our lot, throw in your lot among us. We will, have, we will all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. For their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread. Here's our verse. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. In other words, even a bird does better than we do sometimes. <laughs> right? Even a birdie. And that should be, for all intents and purposes, humbling. Amen? Yeah. And that's good. It's good to be humble. Last time I checked. Verse 18. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the markets, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gates, she speaks. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. 
I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm, and your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. What a wonderful opening chapter in this incredible book of wisdom that we've been on chapter 17 now for months. But that's the way that Solomon opened up this book. And it never gets old. To me, it just it never gets old. It's almost like a, a synopsis of things to come, of all the wisdom that rolls out of this man, right, onto paper, so to speak. Um, this just really sets the stage. So you should make that, you know, a common reading uh, in your, you know, in your, I guess, maybe your yearly studies. Again, the instigating reason for reading that wisdom chapter was our opening thought, which was this up here on the board. Deliverance is but a change of perspective away. And again, it sounds so easy, but somehow we struggle with it. The Spirit just gave us the plain truth on the matter. It's that we lack wisdom from the Word of God. Maybe, just maybe, we don't fear the Lord the way we ought to. Maybe, just maybe, in our sinfulness, we kind of, you know, turn our backs on Him a little bit. Maybe, just maybe, that's what the Spirit's saying to us this evening. In other words, we lack wisdom because a wise person would never turn their back on God, not even one iota, not knowing who and what God is. But we do it, which is why we're not delivered 100% of the time. We lack wisdom from the Word of God itself. We might shorten this to we lack the truth even. So knowing this and desiring to be delivered, we must take in the Word of God. Desiring to be delivered, we must take in the Word of God. We noted this last time. Go to James 1.21. James 1.21. I mean, who here doesn't want to be delivered? I do. I want a change in perspective, right? I want a perspective that delivers me, like now. I want that. I want to be delivered. Well, the Word of God says, take in the Word of God then. Take in the truth, James 1.21. This is the, you know, the whole of it. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save or deliver your souls. What? delivers you the word implanted 
There it is, right in black and white, right in front of you. That's what delivers you, the word implanted. That's why you are to receive it. You're commanded to receive it. And that's a habitual thing. That's not a one-time thing. That's something you do all the time. Let's review McDonald's words from Sunday's message. They're just so good. Up here on the board, McDonald on James 1.21. It is not enough to receive the implanted word. We must obey it. There is no virtue in possessing the Bible or even in reading it as literature. There must be a deep desire to hear God speaking to us and an unquestionable willingness to do whatever he says. We must translate the Bible into action. The Word must become flesh in our lives. I always like to think the Word becomes us, right? Next uh, slide from McDonald, a continuation. To profess great love for God's Word or even to pose as a Bible student is a form of self-deception unless our increasing knowledge of the Word is producing increasing likeness to the Lord Jesus. How many times have we learned that over the past few years? That you will bear fruit. If you're a believer in Christ, you will bear fruit, in other words. He says, to go on gaining intellectual knowledge of the Bible without obeying it can be a trap instead of a blessing. And that's a very interesting thing that I think the Spirit's probably going to say a little bit more on this evening but again, to go on gaining intellectual knowledge of the Bible without obeying it can be a trap instead of a blessing. What was intended for a blessing, in other words, becomes a curse. And then finally up here on the board, if we continually learn but do not do it, we become depressed, frustrated, and callous. He quotes, impression without expression leads to depression. Also, we become more responsible to God. The ideal combination is to read the Word and obey it implicitly. Just take anything off the table. Just no lawyering. None of that. Just obey. If you want to be delivered, then just obey. And stop trying to lawyer. And Again, James 1.21, what does it say? It says, therefore... Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save or deliver your souls. So this begs the question up here on the board. This begs the question regarding deliverance. Why in the world would a believer ever buy the lie that their depression is warranted even? And I'm, I'm speaking theologically. I'm not speaking in any sort of, you know, condemning voice whatsoever or even a mocking voice. It's just really a practical question. Why in the world would a believer ever buy the lie that the depression is actually warranted? Impression without expression leads to depression. If you want to be delivered from your woes, then, quote, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save or deliver your souls. James 1.21, Part B. And 
To say otherwise would be to imply that God's a liar. That that statement in James 1.21 isn't true. What does this mean practically speaking, though? It means, and this is a novel idea, you ready? Pick up your Bible and read it. But, here's the disclaimer as of late. Here's the disclaimer up here on the board. You ready? Read your Bible with intent and humility. Don't just read your Bible. Don't just make it this sort of routine, this habit that you do and you can't wait till it's over. You know what I'm saying? Don't just read it because you're on some kind of a, you know, like one of those one-year reading programs, and then you lose sight of why you're doing it in the first place, so you just do your reading and you're done. That's not reading your Bible with intent or humility. If you don't read your Bible with this attitude, the intended blessing of doing so will ultimately become a curse. That's the point. The intended blessing of doing so will ultimately become a curse. Uh, McDonald said it very well when he said, quote, to go on gaining intellectual knowledge of the Bible without obeying it can be a trap instead of a blessing. So I do hope you really listen to Sunday's message, especially on this particular point about reading your Bible, that even reading your Bible, we can pervert it to a certain degree where it becomes a problem, where it becomes a curse instead. Do you understand? If you're treating it with disrespect, the beginning of, of, of wisdom is what? Fearing the Lord. Right? That's the beginning of wisdom. So you have, to, you have to respect that that's His Word. This is His way of communicating with you. And you have to respect it for what it is. Because if you don't, it's just like disrespecting God to his face. And that's never going to end well. So read your Bible with intent and humility. I was thinking about that. Like, you know, what are the different variations of, you know, people that read the Bible? What are their expectations? All of that. Here's what I came up with, at least in this thread of thinking. The Bible isn't a magic pill. The Bible isn't a magic pill. Listen, in our society, with all the pharmaceutical companies, that's typically what we want, right? We want a pill. We don't actually want to, we don't actually want to, like, exert ourselves. We, this is it. You ready? I want to be fixed. I want a magic pill to fix me, right? And that's been what's been drilled into our heads, that there's a pill for everything, that type of a thing. I'm not saying there's not legitimate pills for illnesses, but you get the point. It's our society. It's our way of life almost. People just expect a quick fix, a magic pill. Well, the Bible isn't a magic pill that you take in the morning and, you know, you just don't give it much thought. Um, the Bible requires your undivided attention when you read it. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Again, I'm not speaking down to any of you. I catch myself all the time. Just reading the Bible and, you know, 
glazing over verses that I've become familiar with. Uh, yeah, I'll be like, you know, oh, man, I've read this a thousand times, right? I'll be like, Brrr, and just be like, duh, 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 duh. oh, that was great. You know, that was great. Didn't, Oh, well, you know, maybe, to be honest, maybe they don't, quote, unquote, interest me in the moment. You ever done that? Right? They don't interest me. Oh, my goodness. You read some of the Old Testament ones, like numbers. You're like, you know, why should that matter, though? And so we do that thing, we glaze over because, you know, something doesn't interest us at the moment, which is really shameful to admit, but it's true. And keep that connection back to why we're not delivered. Because the power is in the Word. And we have the opportunity to read it. We blow it because we just, you know, we're us. And you know what? If I do that thing, inevitably... I suffer for it. I suffer for it personally. And he usually points it out at some other point. I mean, then, then he makes me go in front of a congregation and teach it. Um, you know, God gave me that time in the faculties to sit down and read my Bible. And I chose in those moments to glaze over parts of it because... I'm an idiot sheep, like the rest of you. And that's what we do. We're idiots. We're sheep. It's why we need to be trained up. It's why we need to be reminded, encouraged, exhorted, reproved, rebuked. That's what the Word of God is there for. Now, I want to give you an analogy, and my disclaimer to the analogy is, I'm not advocating for the use of anabolic steroids, okay? Just, I know you're probably looking at this body and like, you probably used it at some point in your life, because look at you. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I never have, by the way. Never needed to. I'm just saying. I'm being punky. So I'm not, I'm not advocating the use of anabolic steroids. So here's my story, and this is a true story. One of my brother's friends, growing up, decided he wanted to be jacked up with muscles, like, you know. And so he spent a bunch of money, he purchased some steroids that he would inject himself with. Like, this was like the real deal. And he had, like, a little chest of it. Like, he had several months worth of steroids. But here's the thing. He rarely worked out at the gym. So he injected himself with steroids, but he rarely worked out. In other words, he just wanted to be like a bodybuilder. But he didn't want to put in the work. <laughs> he didn't want to put in the work. Do you see the analogy here? Like... There are times when we want to be spiritually strong. You know, we want to be that strong spiritual person. The one with the inflappable faith. You know, we want to be that person. Amen? Who doesn't want to be that? We want to be jacked, you know, spiritually mm, strong. But when we take in the Word of God, we don't spend any real time exercising our minds with it. We don't spend any time exercising Actually, you know, putting in the work, we just, you know, 
we want to be like my brother's friend. We just, we want to just, you know, take a magic pill and wake up jacked. Magically wake up jacked one day. Well, I'll tell you that it doesn't work like that. In neither situation, it doesn't work like that. You have to put in the work. As we've read so many times in the past, we must diligently seek for the truth. We must diligently keep digging into the Word of God. We must diligently keep on knocking, keep on seeking, keep on asking God for understanding and wisdom. Remember the parable of the persistent friend we studied recently? Remember that? The one that knocked and said, help me out. And the friend's like, no, my, everybody's in bed. Come on, man, go away. And he just kept doing it. So he just did it because of his persistence. Not even because he was friends. That was a parable that Jesus told. And it, the, what Jesus taught his disciples was about the value of persistence. In other words, the value of putting in the work. The value of staying in the slot. Even while you're reading your Bible putting that extra effort into the endeavor itself, not just reading for the sake of reading. That's religious-type thinking. But actually investing your time and your energy into, and some of you are like, but I'm so tired at the end. Well, well, if you're that tired, you can't invest either at the beginning of the day or the end of the day or whatever you're doing. Maybe you need to back off a little bit of your other so-called priorities. Well, you don't understand. I have a mortgage. Do you really need that giant house? But I have a car. Do you really need a brand new car? But I have a cable bill. Right? It costs me, I don't know, how much, I, this is, not to pick on smoking, how much does a pack of cigarettes cost nowadays? Oh, my God. And it's like, what, 15 cigarettes in there, son? Why do you know so much? <laughs> 10 bucks, 20. I suck them down in three minutes flat. Add that up. I do maths. No, do you know what I'm saying, though? Like, I mean, they're, I'm, I'm not picking on smoking, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, it's kind of like, wait a minute. There's a long way to go, you know, before you can actually say, I'm just so worn out that I really have no time. I don't believe God would ever allow that to happen, by the way. That I've just, I don't have the time or the energy to invest in my reading of the Bible. I'll read it, but I'm not going to invest. I'm only going to be partly there. I'm going to give God, you know, not my first fruits. I'm going to give him my last fruits of the day. You know, that whole thing. And so when Jesus taught his disciples about the value of persistence, he meant to be in it to stay in it, to persist, to knock, to ask persistently, to invest, to invest. And think about it, that, you know, it was where the second friend only helped the first friend out because the first friend was so persistent. And that was the parable. That was Jesus' way of explaining that God demands the point on the board which is read your Bible with intent and humility, right? Intent and humility. Read your Bible that way. Don't just read it, but read it with a mission. Invest 
in it. And pray. Pray for wisdom and understanding. I think it was maybe a couple of weeks ago now. The Spirit said, don't just read your Bible and go like, you know, be like, boom. Okay, was, I'm stopping my day. Stop. Before you get out of the chair or wherever you're sitting, stop from a close your Bible and stop. Close your eyes, pray, ask God for understanding, for wisdom on what you just read. You know, that kind of a thing. Go to Philippians 4, 6. Philippians 4, 6. <clears throat> it almost seems like the Spirit's saying, hey, listen, what goes in the eye gate is the least of your concerns. It's what you do with it. Right? Anybody can read. I can get a, what? I mean, I don't know. I can get a first grader, I think, nowadays, right? To read their Bible. They might not know anything that's going on, but they can read it. They can read the words, but they don't understand a darn thing. So reading certainly is not the issue. It's what you get from it. It's how you invest in it. You're looking for wisdom. You're looking for understanding. Well, here's some good guidance on that front. Philippians 4, 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. But in everything... By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Sounds like we should be praying all the time. Sounds like we should be talking to God all the time. You ever done that before? That's pretty funny. I don't get out much anymore, especially with COVID, but I remember staring. <laughs> I remember having a full conversation with God, like in public, and I didn't know it. I didn't realize it, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm so used to being in the cave. You know, and just talking out loud to God and just talking to myself. And I was in public, and I'm like, you know. And I look around, somebody's like, I'm having like a conversation with an imaginary friend as far as they're concerned. All right, so they make the big arc around me. <laughs> right? Philippians 4, 6, again, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. How about Mark eleven twenty four? Mark 11.24. I mean, the Bible has tons to say about prayer. I remember doing a short series with you on prayer a few years ago. Mark 11.24. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. And it will be yours. How about that? Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.17? Go there. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Some of you already know what this one says. But don't be arrogant. Don't be even more arrogant than what I just described. I already know what that says. I got it memorized. I have it tattooed on my forearm. Why aren't you special? Right? Never become familiar. 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Pray without what? 
without ceasing. That means don't ever stop. Just keep on praying. Why do you think that is? Honestly, you can answer that for yourself. Why do you think that is? Pray without ceasing. Never stop. And we'll have one one last verse, uh, which is the very next passage after the, the parable of the persistent friend, which, by the way, is a discourse on prayer. Go to Luke 11, 9. Luke 11, verse 9. So, yeah, so the parable of the persistent friend is a discourse on prayer itself, on going to God persistently. In the very next verse, after Jesus closes out that parable, Luke eleven nine, look what he says. I mean, look at the proximity of this to the parable itself. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. And you remember I gave you the original language, Seek persistently, ask persistently, knock persistently, right? So here's our recurring principle from last time regarding our deliverance, because remember, that's the outset here. At the outset of this message, that's where we started. Why are we not delivered? Well, some of us don't take in the Word of God. Some of us take it in, but don't take it in with intent and humility. We don't persist on it. We don't pray about it. We don't reflect on it. We don't invest in it. So here's our recurring principle regarding our deliverance. In context, of course, it speaks to the root cause of poor perspective and therefore lack of deliverance up here on the board. The power of truth. The word of truth is the one thing always able to break the chains of bondage to lies. The word of truth is the one thing always able to break the chains of bondage to lies. So here's a, pra- here's a practical example. This is what the Spirit's saying. He's saying, if you do this, blah, 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 you're not going to be set free from the lies because you didn't take it in. You just read words on a paper. You didn't take it in. You didn't reflect on it. You didn't persist on it. You didn't pray on it. You just read it. And so the lies persist. And you're not delivered from those things that are haunting you, that have you in bondage. Now granted, a person does have the free will to reject the truth. I mean, you might realize the truth, you might get there, and then make that horrific decision, I don't want it right now. Anybody ever done that? Nobody? Nobody? Seriously? You have never read the Bible? God's like, you see that right there? That's you. La, 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 la. Right? You know it's you. You know he's talking to you. You know he's trying to do you a favor in that moment. You go, la, 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 nope. And you run away from the Bible. You don't pray at all. Because you don't like where that conversation's going. Right? Because it's Friday night, just got paid. Mm Mm-hmm. Nobody? Nobody? Where's Lois when I need her? (laughs) She would have backed me up. No, do you know what I'm saying, right? So we do have the free will to reject the truth. But as the Spirit brought on Sunday up here on the board, regarding truth, rejecting the truth never changes it, 
and the truth never leaves a person unaffected. And so in a way, I don't want to use this the wrong way, but in a way, we're all pretty brave right now. And I speak as a human, and as a man. Because you know that when you hear the truth, you will be affected. And so there's a certain courage there, right? That's why you're in courage to keep doing this thing. In, be in courage to do this thing. Because you know you're going to get convicted. And you know that the truth never leaves you unchanged. And so there's a certain courage in proceeding forth. Because typically we, you know, we get bruised and all that kind of good stuff. You should be supremely encouraged by the principles on the board. Supremely encouraged. God says that his word never returns empty-handed. We saw that in Isaiah 55, 11. And up here on the board, just because you don't see what effect the word of truth has on a person doesn't mean it hasn't accomplished its intended task. So a person can say, you know, even yourself, maybe you're playing games. I reject that. So? You will not leave unmoved, unaffected. You are already affected. It's almost like saying, you own this now. Right? The truth is upon you. You own it. You can sit there and try to reject it, but that's no matter. It doesn't change the truth. You are affected once you hear the truth. I was thinking about that. Saying otherwise, right? Saying otherwise is like dropping a sledgehammer from the Empire State Building and supposing it won't have an effect on whatever it lands on. The sheer force of the sledgehammer, which, by the way, pales in comparison to the Word of God, the sheer force of the sledgehammer demands a response from its environment. It's not going to go unnoticed. It's going to land, and it's going to land hard. To suppose otherwise would be like suggesting that a person whose head the sledgehammer falls on can simply say, um, I refuse to affect, or I refuse to accept that I've been affected. <laughs> right? Right? Is that, you're laughing because it's silliness, right? But a sledgehammer is nothing compared to the Word of God in terms of raw power. So why would we ever do that? That person will be affected, guaranteed, even if they deny it. I kept getting that scene, you know, like, on the, like in elementary school. And, you know, I don't know, maybe it was just boys. We were idiots, right? And, you know, we pinch each other. Doesn't hurt. Right? And the kid be looking right now. He'd be like, doesn't hurt. Like, doesn't hurt. You walk away like, oh, it's so bad, but you wouldn't admit it. Right? Huge banana bruise on your arm the next day. Didn't hurt. I don't know. Anyways, I think it's just the boys. So denying it doesn't change it. Why then would we ever suppose that a person who hit who, you know, who's hit over the head with the word of God wouldn't be affected. Given the omnipotence and the strength and the power of the word of God. Why would we ever even suppose such a thing? 
I mean, considering there's nothing weightier than God's Word, why would we ever suppose such a thing? We do. Here's our principle from last time up here on the board, the power of the Word. If the Word can save a person from hell, Jesus is the Word, John 1, then he can certainly deliver a person from a web of lies they've been living in. That's how powerful it is. It's powerful enough to deliver you from whatever circumstance you're in. The issue is humility, as always, of course. A humble person is a person who is delivered from their woes. A humble person is a person who is delivered from their woes. It may not mean that the welt on their noggin goes away instantaneously, but they will certainly be able to handle it. In other words, when the word of truth comes down on you and you receive a healthy bruise, that bruise might last for a time, and it may indeed be the cause of considerable pain even. But God promises that he'll never give you more than you can handle. Again, the key is humility. And by definition, biblically speaking, a humble person is an obedient person. A humble person is an obedient person. And what have we learned about that lately up here on the board? An obedient person is a protected person. So you see it comes all comes full circle. How are we delivered? We learn the word of God. We invest in it. We receive it. We're convicted by it. And we, guess what? Obey it. All of that happens in the sphere of humility. That's how we're delivered. It's always, oh, I've been saying this for a decade. The key to the spiritual life is what? Humility. It literally is the key. The whole of it. If you ever get arrogant, you've, you've chosen to frustrate God's plan for your life. His will for your life. And when you do that thing, you leave yourself exposed. In other words, not protected, unprotected. Not because of God's fault, but by your own doing. Right? Think about the way we started in Proverbs 1. He says, I'm going to scoff at you. If you refuse my good counsel, I'm going to scoff at you. I'm going to mock you in your terror, says God. Or you can obey me and be totally blessed out and be protected. Arrogance ignores them. Humility obeys. So if we want to be delivered from the, you know, the lies we grew up with because that's what haunts us, then we have to obey. We have to be humble. We have to obey so that we're protected. All of that takes us all the way back to our recurring principle on the topic of family up here on the board. Now's the time. What are we waiting for then? With everything that he said about family, marriage, family, all that good stuff, now's the time. Listen, I know, I know for a fact some of you are struggling with this literally as I speak because these principles put you outside of a place that you want to be. They force your flesh 
out. And you're fighting it. And you're fighting it right now. And the Spirit keeps, this is like the fifth time this thing's come up, this one slide. It's been weeks now, I think. Now's the time. He keeps saying it. Now's the time. Stop. Now is the time. Stop lawyering. Stop making excuses for yourself. Stop making excuses for your terrible decisions. Stop wondering why you're not delivering. All of that. Now's the time. You do not have to be a rocket scientist to understand what the Spirit's been teaching. Amen? It really is very simple. And I will go to my grave believing this. If you've been in the Word of God even for a little while, which is not most of you, most of you have been in the Word of God for years and years and years, you can tell the difference between what's right and wrong. And if you forget, you ready? If you forget, this one little litmus test, it always works. Is this bringing glory to God? Is this thing that I'm thinking or doing or saying, is it bringing glory to God? You know you can answer that question. Is that fair enough? You know without a doubt in every thought, every you know, especially when you're sinning, you know when something's not glorifying God. So there's no out. There's no like playing games, you know, just obey, right? Use that good conscience for your own benefit so that you can be delivered. That's why God installed it there as a device he uses, the instrument he uses to convict us between right and wrong. So now's the time. Now's the time to receive the word implanted. Now's the time to align your perception with God's reality. Now's the time to protect your family. Now, if you live alone, then you are the family. Okay, you're a family of one. That's like Paul. I mean, that was like Jesus, right? So it's like, whatever. You know. You don't have to be the uh, Partridge family, right? Or the Brady Bunch. To understand these principles... With that said, it's time to wrap up our focus on family. Here's a good summary from Sunday's message up here on the board. A godly family is an obedient family. Is a family blessed with hope and love. Keeps Christ at the center and brings glory to God. Those are the things. I mean, if we're to wrap it all up, I would say that's a fair estimation of the ground that we've covered over the past few months on this topic of family in Proverbs 17.6. Godly family is an obedient family. is a family blessed with hope and love, keeps Christ at the center, and brings glory to God. And to be even more succinct than that, if we had to net all of our studies out, months, love is the central theme. You want a godly family? Then it has to center on love. There has to be love. And I mean godly love. Not that syrupy stuff that you read about, that romantic garbage. Not that subjective stuff. Objective, godly love. 
That's the central theme. Because love's the tie that binds a godly family together. Hence the analogy or the nature of the ongoing analogy of earthly families to our heavenly one even. Go to Ephesians 4.15. Ephesians 4 verse 15. Ephesians 4.15. What about love? What about love in the heavenly sense, in the heavenly family? Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's how we grow. We want to be built up in love. That's a picture of our spiritual family, right? It's a picture of us, the body of Christ, to grow up in what? In love. And what have we learned about our earthly families? That's the little microcosm of the larger family, of God's family. He teaches us. It's a little science experiment, right? Where God ideally teaches his own children about his love. That's the ideal for a family. And here's where we ended on Sunday up here on the board. Maximum glory to God is the result of his love being present in a family. That his love is the centerpiece of the family. That's how he designed it. That's where maximum glory is had. That's where we're blessed out the most. It's where our family members are blessed out the most. Love. If love is present, everything else, just for lack of a better term, works, it way, works its way out. If love is present, right? I mean, think about it. Think in the... I think in the blog I just wrote this, or I think it was in the blog, love covers a multitude of sins, right? Because what do we do if nothing else in a family but sin against each other? Let's face it, right? We're stuck in a, a you know, relatively small space for long periods of time. And what do we do? We just sin against each other, Right? I mean, that's what we do because we're sinners, and so our sin bleeds over into the laps of other residents of the house. <laughs> right? And so we need love because love covers a multitude of sins. We need love for the sake of forgiveness. Otherwise, we choke each other out. Is that fair? Go to Romans 13.8. This is what Paul wrote about. Romans 13.8, a theme he carried throughout Romans specifically in Romans 13, 8 and forward. We need love in families. We need godly love. Not that garbage kind. Not that subjective kind. The objective, Christ-like kind of love. Romans 13, 8, oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. 
You see, every, that's what I meant by everything else works itself out. If, you, if there's love, you don't even have to worry about specific you know, line items of law. You do what's right, just like I talked about earlier. You do what's right because he's instilled that faculty in you, that good conscience to convict you. And if love is functioning properly, you know what's right and wrong. And if you know it's the right thing to do and you don't do it, it's a sin. So if it's the right thing to do and it's in your family and it calls for forgiveness, then you forgive. Because that's what delivers the brood. That's what initiates grace, right? And that's what heals the wounds that we inflict on each other. In the absence of that kind of love, I mean, how many people, some of you are probably like, I, I know that because it's me. Like you have siblings or you know people have siblings that haven't spoken for years. Because of foolishness. Because there's no godly love. One or both of the people lack godly love. And so there's a division there that just persists. And some of you are like, I'm hopeless because it's the other person. They're ungodly. And you say, you pray for them. Right? But what a tragedy, right? What a tragedy. You could have the most beautiful type of relationship with a family member, and instead it's rotten and it's fractured and it's awful. Why? It's not godly love. It's not godly love. Look at verse 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And where is this principle of love more amplified than in the home where you live with others? Honestly, where else is that love more required given the proximity of of one another in a home? Like, it's really required. Turns out that marriage and family, as I said uh, last week, Marriage and family, they're like what you would call in military terms, you know, the tip of the spear. And you look at military strategy, you always have that sort of flying bird V formation, and they kind of, you know, penetrate that way into the land, right? Tip of the spear. It's whoever's on the, the bleeding edge of the battle. That's the tip of the spear. It's where all the carnage is, right? Because that's the greatest point of danger and clashing and stuff like that. Well, you know what? Marriage and family, they're tip of the spear institutions in the sense that by virtue of their structure even, they force multiple people together. Ultimately, it's the place of a lot of what we'll call fleshly friction. And I'll leave you with this because it makes me laugh. I remember doing this at uh, Joey and Andrea's wedding. You know, I described marriage as being like two wild animals tied together by a short rope. Hey, DJ, Kathy's laughing this time. You're not. I don't know what's going on, right? It's true. Two wild animals tied together by a short rope. What do they do? (laughs) What do you think they do? They go at each other. That's marriage. And if there's not godly love, guess what? One of them kills the other one. Or they just spend their entire lives like this, you know, stretched out as far away as they can from each other. 
You don't get that? Ugh. The kingdom of darkness wants these two people, especially if they're believers, to bite and devour one another. So we have to think about it that way. Where I'm actually out of time. Um, I'm not going to be here this coming week, so I'll come back and finish this up. But we're pretty much done. I say that, but watch what happens. I think we're done with uh, family right now. We're going we're gonna to move on. Um, but think, think about what the Spirit uh, talked about this evening. A lot of good points. Let's bow our heads. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege of being here this evening for just hearing your word, the unadulterated truth that's designed to set us free, Father. We know that there are tip of the spear functions in our lives, marriage, family, Father, that are constantly under attack from without and from within. We're so very grateful for the truth and the wisdom to be able to apply the word of truth to those institutions in love. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own homes. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.